you turn to Luke this morning, <laughs> Luke chapter 14. After you find that, find the uh, book of Colossians chapter 1. Myrtle McCree had a, one of his granddaughters, I think it was one of his granddaughters, was uh, memorizing a scripture out of the Colossians and she quoted it to him and she called it the book of Colossians. So... Uh, Luke chapter 14 and Colossians chapter 1, we'll look there in, a, in just a minute. Paula and I were in a youth ministry for 10 years before uh, I was the pastor here. I say that, we were in pastoral ministry then too. And those were such rewarding years. Uh, you didn't have a lot of the pressure of, uh, of the uh, administration of the church and what people call maybe a senior pastor, not that I don't enjoy what I do, but they were just really good years. In fact, last Sunday even, we had a young man that was uh, in the youth minister here when I was a youth pastor for one year, and uh, just good times. So uh, occasion, now most people, they think about, uh, and I preferred youth pastor to youth director. I wasn't legalistic about it. Um, but a youth director comes to mind like a YMCA director, you know, where he's organizing games and things. And you do play games. But a youth pastor is someone that is responsible for soul care, pastoral work. And uh, that's what my burden was for. Well, we did have fun with games. And uh, one of the games that we did, not, not very often, but we would divide the kids. This was for really large groups. Divide the kids up into teams, and uh, so you'd have one group over here and one group over here, and I'd have one of my uh, adult leaders about a, maybe a, a hundred feet out uh, in front of this group A, and a hundred feet out in front of group B, and at their feet would be a baseball bat, and so I would give the instructions to each group that they had to sprint out here, and whoever finished the uh, Relay race first would win, and they would go out and do the prescribed activity and come back and tag the other group and so forth until whoever finished first. Well, what they had to do was they had to go out there, pick up the baseball bat, and pick up the smaller end, the grip end of the baseball bat, put it on their forehead, and then put uh, the larger end of the bat where you hit the ball and put it on the ground, and then bend over, and keeping their forehead on it, and then walk around in a circle 25 times. How many of you have done this before? Oh, well, you know what I'm talking about. Now, there's a couple of things. When teenagers are competitive, and some of you are like this too, they're not going to walk around 25 times. They're going to go as fast as they can because they're in a relay. They want to win. Well, <laughs> the centrifugal force of a baseball bat, you're, you're just going really, really fast. So the, the adult worker is there to do two things, to make sure, you know, the bat is on the ground and their head is on the top of the bat, and they're there to count the revolutions. One, two, three, four. And then when they say 25, then they're released to go back to the line and tag them up. Those of you that have not partaken in this activity, I, I don't want anybody in here to have ever been drunk. But if you've ever been drunk, it's like that. Um, I guess. I haven't been, but I guess. It's about the closest I've ever been. Um, when you release that, you're, you're messed up, you're balanced, and it is impossible for you to run straight. I've never seen anybody. In fact, most people, the best they can do is about a 45-degree angle, and, and they fall down. Those of you that am I telling the truth? And they fall down hard. So really, the youth pastors that do this are sick. I mean, it's for his entertainment. There's no, there's no competitiveness in it. So it's just a whole lot of fun to watch. You know, the kids think they're going to have a, 
uh, somebody's going to win this thing, but it's really just a whole lot of fun to watch Johnny and, and Beth, you know, fall and, and so forth. This past year, in 2020, that's how most of us have, have felt about our goals. Where at the end of uh, 2019, early 2020, we wrote down some things that we wanted to accomplish and we sprinted out and then uh, some things happened. And some things are still happening. And uh, we are trying to, to get our bearings. And we're just doing our best, some of us, to, to survive. And we're in a fog. I want to talk to you this morning again about living and ministering with uncertainty. Uh, we're just trying to get back to the line. We're stumbling. We're falling. Uh, what well, started out really good... And then somebody played a dirty trick on us. But when you're, in, when you're in uncertainty, what happens is you become hesitant. And when you're hesitant, you stop doing the things that you need to do that help make you successful. You stop sowing the seeds because you're in a survival mode. Now, sometimes when you're in a crisis, you have to do that. But over time, when you stop sowing seeds, you stop reaping a harvest. And uncertainty makes you become safe. And after you become safe over time, you, you, you become unhealthy. And uh, over time, when you're unhealthy, you, you, you will die. And organizations can get into a place where they, and individuals too, I'm going to speak to our church this morning but I said living and ministering with uncertainty, these principles apply to your life. They also apply to our church because the church is the people. You, you can get in this death spiral and you, you don't know how to get out of it. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, we, are, we are people of, of habit. I think most people are. I know that I am. So when I'm at home, I'm in a rhythm. My Bible is in the same place. My devotional books are in the same place. I go to the same chair. My, my schedule is the same. And it's easier for me to walk with God at home than it is on vacation. Or when I'm on a business trip. Because when I'm out of my schedule, when I'm out of the familiar, what happens is my habits change. And so... <clears throat> That, that chair's not there. Maybe I have on a business trip, my, my, I have a morning meetings or everything has changed. And so I learned many, many years ago that even on vacation with the family, because things are changed, that I very quickly have to establish some new habits if I'm gone for a period of time. That I'm going to not just say, well, I need to read my Bible this week. I'm not going to read it. Or it's not going to be well done. Then I'm going to have to say, okay, this is, this is my time. It may be a new time. This is going to be a place. And this is kind of like a new home, if you will. A hotel room. That I'm going to, to spend my time alone with the Lord. So my question for you is this. Is how, how are you navigating these times? Are you dizzy? Are you kind of, rather than going straight, you're stumbling, maybe you're falling, or you're headed off to a 45-degree angle, and you're, you're, by degree, degree, you're getting further away from where you want to be? Well, that happens to, to governments. It happens to businesses. We've seen that. And it happens to local churches, too, because the fog of uncertainty will derail you Unless, unless, and this is a big idea, it's the same big idea I gave you last week, because this is a huge truth. Now listen carefully, and here it is. The way to live in these uncertain times is to know what you're certain of and to live by those certainties. Because when you're surrounded by uncertainties, they shout louder than your certainties. Because the things that you're certainties, certain of, like the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible is the Word of God, those things are so familiar to you 
that the new things, the news, and uh, well, what is true about the virus? Is, is there another strand? Uh, is, this, is this inoculation? Uh, is this working? Or as Barney Fife says, is this inoculation? Is it working? Um, all of these things, and, and your mind, your mind gets off of the basics. And so, in times of uncertainty, you need to know what you're certain of and live by those certainties. That is so fundamental. But I'm telling you, when you have these anchors in your life, it, it's what's going to help you in your personal life, but it's going to help the church too. And so last week, I, I gave you some certainties that we have in the church. Number one, every local church has a promise. We have a promise. Now, we, we may not claim it, but we have a promise. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, six, I'm sorry, Matthew 16 and verse 18, He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus said that's His promise. He said, I, now notice, He said He will, and He'll use us, but He will build His church. Now, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, which is a question with an obvious answer that you already know. But you, you, need, to, you need to answer this question for yourself. Does that apply to us? Well, yes. Does that apply to you? Well, yes. Well, then would he, will he build this church? Well, yes, he will. And no scheme of hell, the gates of hell, shall not prevail against one of God's churches. You see, we have his promise. And then last week I said that these are certainties. Not only do we have His promise, but we have a purpose. We have His purpose. God has already given His purpose. We call it the Great Commission to win people to Christ and to disciple those converts. Um, We have kind of uh, crafted it this way, that the mission of Friendship Baptist Church is to honor God. We want to honor Him, bring glory to Him. Well, how do you do that? By seeing lives change, and God delights to see our hearts change, the way we walk, the way we talk, our attitudes. And how do we do that? By bringing people to Jesus. And if you never come to Christ, that's how God changes you. Not by joining the church, not by being baptized, not by trying to do better, but by coming to Christ. And then discipling them. That's how, that's, that brings honor to Jesus, and that's how people are changed. That's the mission of every local church. God has given this to us, and it's not an unknown. So out of all of the the unknowns, well, are we going to be able to have church next Sunday? Now, some of those things, you kind of get back in the habit. But uh, we've been throwing some curveballs, and uh, it's a whole lot easier. In, you know, I remember pastors especially said this, and people said this, but... The leaders, the business owners, and the leaders, you heard this said a lot. I, won't, I can't wait till things go back to, what was the next word? Yes. And uh, the thinkers, and I don't want to be cynical, I, I, and I'm not a cynical person. But I think that there, there was a new normal. I remember after 9-1-1, there was some new normals. The airports changed and securities and so forth. And, and sometimes uh, laws are put in that they don't change. I, I remember when the airports got into trouble, and they said, well, we, look, we're going bankrupt. There's not going to be airlines, so we're going to have to start ch- charging for baggage. Remember that? It's just short term till we get over the hump. Don't raise your hand because now I am being cynical now. I will confess. But how many of you, like me, knew when that happened, said, well, this boat ain't going to turn around. What's that thing going in? Is not. And so what happens is there are certain new normals that come into effect. And so <clears throat> it's not for God's people to become cynical people and say, well, it's going to be a new normal. Frankly, I, I don't want to hang around people that are just always finding the negative. God has given us some certainties. He's given us a promise. He's given us a purpose. And then number three, he's given us a strategy. Now, we, we, we can have strategies. God 
gave us a mind to think with. But God has given us a strategy to fulfill the purpose. And methods are different, but there's a strategy. And let me give you the twofold strategy that God has given to fulfill the purpose of seeing lives changed. And uh, it is by bringing people to Jesus and discipling them. But, but what in, in, in a different approach, how do you do this? Well, first of all, you cast the net wide. You cast the net wide. And I, I want to borrow your mind. Please, please, this is biblical, but I want you to see this. This is taking a, a fishing metaphor here. Now, I don't have time because we're going to look at some other scriptures here. But in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells, in fact, there are more parables in the gospel of Luke than any other gospel. Jesus told stories. He was a master storyteller. Uh, You know, years ago, people criticized preachers and they said, well, he just tells stories. Well, so did Jesus. What are you going to do with him? You know, Uh, I was uh, preaching at a men's conference, and uh, after one of the sessions, one of the the pastor said, it was the pastor that sponsored the meeting, he said, you know, he said, uh, they listen to you. And what I'm thinking, I said, well, maybe they do. I know I'm not a, I don't pound the pulpit, and I don't scream a lot. He said, I know why they listen to you. And I'm thinking, well, I would like to know that if they're listening. You know what he said? He didn't say what I wanted him to say. I, I wanted him to say, you're such a godly man. He didn't say that. <laughs> you know what he said? He said, because you tell stories. That's what he said. I thought he'd say you preach the Bible well. He didn't say that either. And he didn't mean it in a negative way. But I thought, well, Jesus told, Jesus tells stories. I think that there's something there for you moms and dads, too. If I could just interject, I'm not preaching on parenting now, but your your kids will remember principles when you couch them in stories. That's the purpose of a parable. It wasn't so they remember the story. It's the principle. And frankly, that's why I tell stories. I never tell a story just to tell the story. For example, there was a principle behind this. <laughs> I am a hypocrite sometimes. <laughs> uh, Cast the net wide. Cast the net wide. So Jesus is telling this story where uh, a, a great supper, it's a parable of the great supper. The supper is paid for, everyone is invited, and all of a sudden people begin to make excuses. Oh, I bought some property and I can't come. I bought some new animals and I can't come. I married a wife and I can't come. And, uh, and the wealthy man, he becomes very angry. And, you know, we don't talk about the wrath of God much, but God, God can become angry. He's a loving God, but he, he, he's full of wrath sometimes. And in Luke chapter 14, look at verse 21. It picks up here in that story. So that servant came. He's going to report. He's been inviting people, which is what they did, to the, uh, to the feast. And showed his Lord these things, that is, these excuses. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Now, if you have a, a pencil, or as my friend Richard White, you say, or Crayola, you may want to underline this. Go out. Mark that. Go out. Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt. Now, the halt means people that, that were halting. Remember in First Kings... Um, where Elijah said, how long halt ye between two opinions? It means they were halting. They would go over here. That's how people that were halting walk. They had physical problems. And the halt and the blind. In other words, go get disadvantaged people. That's what he's saying. And, and he did. The servant did. And he said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there's room. We still have plenty of room at the feast. The food's going to spoil. There's room in the tables. And the Lord said unto the servant, underline these two words, go out. Second time he said that, go out. This time not in the streets and the lanes, but the highways and the hedges. Now the hedges were like the alleys. 
Okay, this is not just in the main drives, but even the very smallest places you can find out in the country, if you will. I mean, the, the places where nobody goes, if you will. Go out on the highways and hedges and compel them, motivate them to come in. Now, now I have this underlined, that my house may be filled. That my house may be filled. Now, two times there in that passage, he says to go out. And there at the end of verse 23, he says that my house may be filled. In other words, the idea here is to cast the net wide. Now, if you're a Christian... You've been born again. Your job and my job is to cast the seed of the gospel frequently. That's everybody's job. And we're to cast the net wide. Now, the Bible uses this this principle of sowing and reaping, the picture of agriculture. of of When you sow seed, you're going to reap a harvest so many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of my favorite places is in the book of Ecclesiastes when he says, you never know what you're going to get. You never know. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 6, notice this. In the morning sow thy seed. And it's implied here. And in the evening sow thy seed. Withhold not thine hand. Sow the seed. Now here's why. Thou knowest not whether shall prosper. That is, in the morning or the evening. I have this underlined, this or that. Or him or her. Or young or old. Or whether they both shall be alike good. Our job is not to say, well, that's a good convert. Or I like, I like him. Or I think we'd be friends. I'd like for them to come to the church. That's not yours to, your call to make. The Bible says here that we cast the net wide we cast the net wide and in here it comes back to the principle that the, the the church while we are to take a strong stand on moral issues we we are wasting our time frankly from a biblical framework to get involved with political matters i'm not talking about moral matters but if you want to change the spiritual direction of a nation you get people saved and you make christians out of them and he changes their heart and he changes their vote. That's the way you change those things. But you, there's a whole lot of other things there. But, but, but the whole idea here is you, you never know what's going to happen. So cast the net wide. Cast it wide. And then a verse in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. But this I say, he which sareth, I'm sorry, soweth sparingly. Uh, you're a cheapskate. Well, I, I'm just going to re- really be spare with this. I'm going to keep keep a lot of it. Shall reap sparingly, but he was soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. So if, if you want a rich harvest, you have to sow. You've got to sow tracts, T-R-A-C-T-S. Sometimes I, I guess I'm a spelling Nazi. But I see it spelled in different places, T-R-A-C-K-S. I've been giving out tracks. I don't know if they go out to, you know, to the railroad and they pick up these tracks and they're going out and giving tracks to people, you know. T-R-A-C-T-S, tracks. Sow these tracks. Sow kind words to people. Point people to Jesus. And you're sowing the seed of the gospel. Even... I taught you several weeks ago that, that inviting people to church is a form of witnessing. Now, the gospel almost always has to be in witnessing. But listen, when people come to church, they will hear the gospel in the music and the message. But I would make it a goal every day that you could invite someone to church and you could point someone to Christ. You can pass out a tract. Every single day that somehow you sow the seed and cast the net wide. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that if everybody in this room, that if you sowed the seed of the gospel every day, what would happen? Now you would say, well, a lot of people come to our church. Well, more people come to our church, but listen carefully. I'm not concerned about that. 
They may, go, they may go to other churches, which is fine with me as long as they're Bible-believing churches because the issue is this, is that, that they, they're delivered from a Christless eternity. That's the issue. And uh, we want them to go to, to, to great churches that believe the Bible and, and love the Lord. This, this point here is not about building this kingdom in this church. But as a side... To what I'm pointing out, yes, more people will come to our church because if you love them, you genuinely care for them, they'll come. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And uh, the more interactions you have with them, you go to the same restaurant and you have the same waitress or waiter and you get to know them, you learn their name, you take an interest in them, you pray for them and with them and you serve them, find out when their birthday is and and you get them birthday gifts. And uh, over 10 years, sometimes 15 years, you may win them to Christ. Sometimes over 10 days. But as Ecclesiastes says, you, you never know. You never know. My job is to cast the net. It's his job to bring the harvest. Are you sowing the seed of the gospel of faith? This is a strategy. But now I'm fixing to give you the second part of the strategy. You're going to say, well, these contradict. No, this is God's strategy. Cast the net widely. Secondly, bring those that trust Christ to maturity. That's that's the second part of the strategy. Cast the net widely. Some churches do that well. And then secondly, bring those that trust Christ to maturity, spiritual maturity. And some churches do that well. Now, one thing I, I don't like to hear is say, well, we, we are the first kind of church and we're the second kind of church. Well, either church that says that they're unbiblical. You're both, we're supposed to do both of them. Now, we'll say this, that a church tends to, to follow after the spiritual gifts, of, especially of, of the pastor, and the pastor has to watch that. But... The goal of a church is not first its size, but its quality. Did you hear that? It's not, it's not just quantity. I remember years ago when I was ordained where Elmer Town said, he said, now, now guys, remember, you're, you're not building a crowd, you're building an army. I mean, if, if, I, I told you the story many years ago when, uh, about a church that was having their one-year anniversary in Dallas, Texas. And uh, so their goal, they started the church from scratch. There was nobody, uh, the church had never existed before. The pastor started, and on, one, on their one-year anniversary, they set a goal. You know what their goal was? 1,000. So they never existed before. They're going to have 1,000 people. So here's what they did. I don't know where the guy got the money. But what he did is he... He got the orchestra from Dallas, uh, Texas Philharmonic Orchestra, whatever they called themselves. Well, that probably counted for 150, I guess. Well, that was a good. That was a good start. Then he got. Now, I'm dating myself here. Some of you folks are going to say, "Who?" Some of you older folks will say, "Oh, I remember her." Uh, and please don't look it up. Just write her name down. You can look it up later. But there was a lady that was fighting some moral battles for Christians way back when. Her name was Anita Bryant. And man, when she, in, in her day, she was a precious, godly woman. If she showed up, she was going to draw a crowd. And so Anita Bryant came, and then some famous athlete came. And so they had all of these pieces that came, and they had, you know, all this stuff, some stuff for the kids. I'm not saying these things are wrong in and of themselves. But I remember, and I remember when that happened, and I I thought, I heard about it on the front end. I thought, man, that's amazing. That church had a thousand on their their first anniversary. And then one of my, my mentors was talking to a small group of pastors, uh, years ago, maybe I'm trying to think, 1984. I heard him talking about this, and uh, he said, I, "I knew a pastor," and I said, "Oh, I knew. I don't know that pastor." And I'm telling, I'm not telling you on purpose, but he said he did this, and I thought, "Oh, I remember that." And and my mentor, he said, "You guys don't ever do that." 
And he said, I'm going to tell you why. He said, because the next Sunday's coming. I remember sitting there and I thought, boy, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Because Anita ain't coming the next week. And the orchestra ain't coming. And, and Tom Landry, whoever it was, he ain't coming. And all those other people that came to hear them ain't coming. And then you're going to have your 75 that are looking for the other 925. And it's so easy to, to realize, hey, man, we got a good thing going because the goal is not just to have a have quantity. You want to win these people to Christ, cast the net wide, win them, and then help them grow spiritually. Now, I want you to see um, in Luke chapter 14. Can you look over there? Now, I want you to see where Jesus... Now, Jesus, what he did in one passage, you just looked at this, where... What he did is he said, I want you to go out in the highways and hedges. Now you're going to read this, and it looks the opposite, where he tries to cut the crowd. You say, well, preacher, which is it? It's both. Cast the net wide. But then you need to disciple people. Notice in verse 25, Luke 14, 25. And there went great multitudes with Jesus. Now I have it underlined, great multitudes with him. Great crowds. I mean, he was working miracles. He was a great teacher. He had the crowds. Look up here for a minute. Now I want to ask you a question. Don't don't nod or just I'm I'm asking you to think with me. Was he successful? Well, the world would have said, Well, yes. Look at that crowd. Great multitudes. Finally, he hit, he hit the jackpot. Finally, he, he learned how to grow a church. And Jesus turned and said unto them, that is the multitudes, go into the highways and hedges. Now, he already we're supposed to do that, right? Yeah. But this is the, this is the flip side of the coin. It's the same coin. We do both. This is the same preacher giving a different message, both messages. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I remember as a boy reading that, you know, you read that and you say, well, I don't understand that you're not supposed to hate anybody. Now, the Bible never contradicts itself. Jesus, the fourth commandment, the fourth of the Ten Commandments, says to honor your parents. In fact, the Bible, many, many times, the Bible says to husbands, love your wives. And, and so many other places, it tells us how to care for our parents and how to, to nourish our wife and, and, and wives to care, love our husbands and to care for our kids. This is, this is using comparative language. You ever heard somebody that was on the driving on the interstate and and somebody this happens to Paula a lot a lot we're driving on the interstate we'll have a conversation where we say man they're they're going to get killed just they just go by you so fast and man they they pass us like we were standing still now were we standing still no it was comparative language. And so what the Lord is saying here is that my, my love for my family compared to my love for Christ, it, it, it looks like hate. Not literally, but comparatively. There's no comparison. I'm, I'm to love Christ supremely. So I don't love the preacher. I don't love the building. I, don't, I, don't, I, I love you folks, but compared to Jesus... So you're not going to make me mad and I'm, I'm not going to leave the church because I didn't come for you. I came here to, to love Jesus. I love Christ supremely. And then he continues and says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me. And here he says again the second time, He cannot be my disciple. Now what does it mean to bear the cross? Well, here's what I think it means. It can mean several things, but I think dominantly... 
The cross was the will of God for Jesus. It involved pain and suffering. And that was the will of God for him. Are you willing to, to do the will of God? Are you surrendered to do the will of God even if it has obstacles and suffering? Or do you, do you just run when it gets tough? Are, are you willing to do the, His will? Are you surrendered to it? That's what He's saying. This is tough. And who did He say it to? The multitudes. So you cast, this is a strategy. We, we win as many as we can, and then we want to help disciples. We want to help them to love. We're not trying to run them off. We want to help them to love Christ and help them to do the will of God. But we're honest with them about the, ma- the message. Can I show you one other example here? Because it's not just about quantity, it's about quality. In fact, it's more about quality than quantity. I'm going to show you some more verses in a moment. But in John chapter 6, these are on the screen for you in verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, many, you get the crowd, when they had heard this, and if you read the previous verses, they heard a message from Jesus they, they didn't like. And they said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? They, they didn't like it, they were offended. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before, which he came down, and after the resurrection he was going to go up in the ascension. He was, he said, You, you haven't seen anything yet. I love this verse. It is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. I love that verse. That's a great truth. When I read the Word of God to myself, it speaks to my spirit. It gives me life. Jesus said, there are some of you that believe not. I wonder if that's true in here. There are some of you that you pretend on the outside, but on the inside you believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not. And who should betray him? And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, from what time? When Jesus confronted them with a hard message that they said, Lord, who can hear this? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. You see that? I mean, what happened is the, the net was cast wide, but, but just because the net is cast wide doesn't mean that everybody that comes in is a Christian. They said, Jesus, under the twelve, will you also go away? And wonderful words, and Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Years ago, I, <clears throat> I heard H.O. Wilmington, a wonderful Bible teacher. He went to heaven several years ago. In fact, he was scheduled to preach here um, years ago, and they had a snowstorm up in Virginia, and he couldn't get out. <clears throat> and so uh, this is one of the definitions for the purpose of the church that he gave. I've given this to you before, but I like this. Wilmington said the purpose of the church is to make as many people as much like Jesus in the shortest amount of time possible. The purpose of the church is to make as many people, that's casting the net wide, as much like Jesus, that's focusing on health and quality in the shortest amount of time possible. I like that because it is objective and it focuses on both of them. You see, we are to be concerned, especially leaders, but I want you to buy into this because it's biblical in with church health. But here's, here's where church, church health comes in. It's about you. Are, you. are you a spiritually healthy Christian? Because if you're not, our church won't be healthy. It's about you. It's about you personally, about your spiritual walk about what you are as a man or woman of God. So here's the question. This begs a question. 
What is the key to church health? If you want to have a healthy church, you've got to have healthy Christians. Well, what's the key to that? Well, there's, there's two things. I'm, let me pause and get my breath back, okay? It's called COVID breath. I'm past it, but I'm not past it. My lungs haven't caught up with me yet. Some of you have been praying against me. Lord, take his breath so he won't preach long on Sunday. All right, so what is the key to church health, the, the healthy body? Well, you cast, you, cast, is it up? you cast a wide net, you reach as many as you can. But you train them, you develop them. It's not just quantity, but there's got to be quality. Now I want to give you, there's two passages, I'm just going to give you this one. And I love this man back here. Andrew, I love you so much. I send him notes every week. And, and he lives way out in Madison, but I hear him laughing. <laughs> He's not going to cover all this. But bless his heart, he, I guess he makes all the slides up. Maybe one time he just won't do it. I have one, two, three, four pages of notes I'm gonna, not going to cover. So that's okay. Let's give him a hand. Hand for Andrew back there. Okay. All right. I bought his lunch last week, so that'll do for today. I want to give you one of my favorite passages for church health. Now, it pertains to, to leaders, spiritual leaders, but it, it also, uh, I'm sorry, it applies to leaders, but it also applies to you because you have to respond. It's not just we're... Your pastors do these things, but, but you have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God and those that would lead you. And I want you, did I ask you to turn to Colossians 1? I think I did earlier, yes. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 28. Colossians 1, 28. Now this is a mandate for pastors especially. This is how to have a, a healthy church. Notice these two verses, and I'm just kind of grabbing. I love verse 27, too, about the Lord Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But look at verse 28. Whom we preach, warning every man. Now, I have this underlined. Every man is used three times. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now I want to give you uh, five observations from this, and it will be dismissed today. Um, these are observations on, on discipleship, personal discipleship. You can apply these to your life, but they're also corporate discipleship, what we want to accomplish here. What I believe, this is a conviction that I have, what I've tried to do here for all of these years, these decades. Number one out of this text is that people grow by focusing on Jesus, by loving and knowing Him. You'll notice the first word in verse 28 is the word whom, personal pronoun. And you can go back in verse 27, see that that regards the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we preach. Uh, we're to have a Christ-centered ministry, we're to have a Christ-centered message, and we're to have Christ-centered lives. It's about Jesus. Um, that's why I said earlier, when we cast a net wide, it's not about so we get a big crowd in here. Um, and we do want to reach more people. Please, please hear my heart on that. Please hear my heart. But they may go to other churches because this is a kingdom issue. It's not about friendship's kingdom. It's not about Rick's kingdom. Whom, whom we preach. You want to grow spiritually? Just focus on Christ.
And my, my, my task, and, and Brother Tim and Daniel, and your task, those of you that, that teach, is to point people to Christ. Their loyalty is to Jesus Christ. People grow by focusing on Jesus. You know what I do every Saturday night to get ready for Sunday? At 7 o'clock, there's a, a, a gospel music kind of a thing that Gaither has on. and Probably nine times out of ten, I, I really like it. And the other time, it's good. But, you know, sometimes it's just maybe not my favorite groups. But that's okay. Some other people may like them. But, and I, I'll just sit down there and I'll just listen to that and, and just feed my soul. And just think about Jesus. And it gets my heart ready for uh, ready for Sunday. You know what I do uh, in the morning, this morning? So I listen to music about Jesus while I'm getting ready. On the way in, I listen to music about Jesus. I love the songs we sang this morning at, at corporately. People grow by focusing on Jesus. You see, that, listen, that's the certainty. It's a person. Hope is in a person. Hope is not ambiguous. Hope is a reality. Our, our hope is a certainty. My hope is, is, is in God. It's in the person of Christ. The second observation in this text is that people grow by a balanced diet of teaching and preaching. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Now, every, every, all, all preaching has teaching, but all teaching is not preaching. I'm, I'm not going, don't have time to cultivate this right now. You don't need to know all this, but um, you need teaching and you need preaching. And you also need warning. Sometimes that includes counseling. It has the idea with a with a, a loving word of counsel it includes warning, but but speaking close to you. It, it's a compound word in the original language. Warning every man, teaching every man, and I like that. In fact, every man. It's not just corporate, but sometimes one on one. A balanced diet. Number three <clears throat> observation: the objective of our ministry is to help people spiritually mature. To make them perfect, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The word perfect means mature, full grown, complete. And somebody asked a pastor one time, say, well, uh, how long will you be a pastor? When, When does your job stop? He said, well, until everybody's perfect. (laughs) Every man perfect. Full grown. And that's our objective. We want to win them. Bring them in. But we want to help them to grow. Teach them spiritual disciplines. Get in the Word of God. Love Christ. How to relate with people. How to have ethics at work. Etc. Have a Christ-centered home. Number four. This ministry is a priority for the pastor. The Bible says there in verse 29, he says, Whereunto I also labor, and it's costly to the pastor. The word labor there means to be weary from toil. It even means to be exhausted. And then he uses the word striving, striving. The Greek word there comes from agonize. If you, if I would throw it up there, you'd see it. He, there's an agony to it. And it's not just physical, there's a spiritual agony the same word is used in Colossians 4. I think it was Epaphras when he was praying. Praying is laborious. There's agony. Praying, uh, intercessory prayer, praying for people as a spiritual leader. It's a priority, Acts 6.4. Laboring. I'm thinking about saying something. I want to make sure my motive is right. Sometimes I can hear a pastor preach and know if he studied or not. And, and I, have to, I have to 
guard myself. Because my, my immediate thoughts are, are, you're lazy. You're lazy. You're cheating your people. You know, I don't, I don't, um, I'm not gone a lot in churches, but I'll be really honest with you. And this is why I'm trying to protect what I say here because it sounds so self-serving. I know that I'm not the best preacher. I know that. But I, I, I do not shortchange you. But I've been so discouraged in the churches I go to sometimes. I've been blessed. I've been blessed too. But in many times, I can just tell you're just shooting from the hip. You just wrote five words on a piece of paper. You just stood up. You're not prepared because it's labor. There's weariness. There's toil. There's agony and praying. This ministry is a priority. It's to be a priority preacher. And those of you that are teachers, I hope your ministry is a priority to you. Why should God give you ten if you won't take care of the one? And then last of all, number five, God provides a spiritual power to accomplish this task. I like this. In spite of the labor, the weariness, the agony, striving. Look at this. According to His working which worketh in me mightily. Isn't that good? Isn't that encouraging? According to His working which worketh in me mightily. I get tired easy because of my physical issues. But I ask the Lord to help me, and He always does. He always does. And this is the way. Listen, this is a strategy. I'm going to come back next week. I'm going to finish this next week. Are you laughing? I'm going to finish this next week. Um, and, and complete this. But this is a strategy to cast the net wide. But while we're casting the net wide and we bring people in, we're not just entertaining the goats. That's what Spurgeon said. But we're feeding the sheep. You understand what that means? I think the way he said it in, in his British language back then was amusing the goats. We're not just amusing lost people. But we're helping them. Uh, this past uh, Wednesday, my, my, uh, one of my pastors died. The second pastor I ever worked with. He, uh, he got COVID. He preached on December the 20th. I went to the hospital on December the 19th. My fever was 103.8. And uh, I said, I'm going to be okay. Because I didn't want to go to the hospital. You know why I didn't want to go? Because I didn't want them to keep me in the hospital. That's why I didn't want to go. Because everything I've read is, well, we can't help you. But my kids pushed me and prodded me and insisted, we're we're sending an ambulance for you. And most of you know my oldest boy, Jeremiah, works for the fire department out in Madison. And sometimes he drives the rescue vehicles. And somehow I didn't lose my humor. And I said, well, tell Jeremiah I'll go if he'll come and drive the ambulance himself. And I'll get in the back and he will be the driver. (laughs) So I went to the hospital in Madison because it was less crowded. Plus, I know the president of the hospital out there. That helps. And they didn't put me in. And then a week later, nine days later, my fever peaked again. About the same amount. And I'm, you know, begging Paula, don't tell the kids, don't tell the kids. I can command my wife. You know that verse about 
Wives, submit yourselves. And you know that verse. It doesn't apply to her. You're going to the hospital. So I got in the car. and I knew I should have gone, but I didn't want to go. Do you know why? Because I didn't want to go in the hospital. So this time I had a new doctor. And, uh, and, you know, they won't let anybody back there. Did you know that, even in the emergency area? Did you know that Paula weaseled her way back in that room? You know how she did it? She had the number to the hospital president. And here's what she did. She said, Mary Lynn, she said, Rick is deaf and he didn't have his hearing aids in. He won't be able to hear the doctor. Which is probably true. Are you asking your wife to take notes? And she said, well, let me see what I can do. And I'm laying in there. And Paula said, well, how did you get in here? She told me. So the doctor comes in. And uh, the first time. And he stands there. Paul and I have talked about this. And he, he just stands there for, I don't know, several minutes. And he's just thinking. He doesn't say anything. He's looking at the numbers. Well, we'll see. I can tell he's thinking about putting me in here. And he leaves. And I told Paul, I said, I don't want to go in here. And then he comes back several hours later. And now he enunciates it. And he says, well, I'm trying to decide. You, you can come in here. But you can feel bad at home too. But, and I can tell he's weighing it. And I'm trying to act like I'm feeling good and smile. And, you know, trying to pretend like I can breathe good. And, and they let me go home. But when I, when I went to the hospital, it was the first time, it was December the 19th. My friend that passed away Wednesday was, was December the 20th. The next day he preached his last sermon. On Friday, on, on early that week, on Tuesday, I think he went to the hospital. On Friday, he called one of the men in his church from the hospital. And I listened at his funeral service yesterday. I wanted to go so bad, but I couldn't. And through the tears, the man said, he, he couldn't talk. He would say one word and then gasp in four days. And nobody's home yesterday. I'm watching this funeral service on my computer. Really glad nobody's there. Just I was just so grief-stricken. He's a couple of years older than me. And I'm just thinking about about myself and, and and other friends that Lord Lord you 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 helped me and I have this underlying disease and you helped me you helped me I'm not praying on your emotions I'm very sincere with you right now but but you you permitted Lou to come home So, so there's some things, there's some things you have left for me to do. There's some things you have left for me to do. And I can, you know, I can sometimes complain and wish that I had better circumstances. But there's some stuff you have for me to do. And in the midst, listen, in the midst of, of our uncertainty... There are certainties. And I know this. And you, listen, it's true of you. That I don't know that I'll be here Friday, but I know I have today. And do you know what I can do today and what you can do today? Is I can cast the net really wide. I can cast it really wide.
and I can invest the gospel and help somebody to develop spiritual maturity in their life, encourage them, maybe teach them, and do something to, to take them one step closer to Christ-likeness. That's a certainty. In church, you can do that. I'm finished, but listen, if you'll do that, if you'll do that, everything will be all right here. It'll be all right. Living and ministering in times of uncertainty. The wise action is to know what the certainties are and act on those. And these are certainties that He's given to us as individuals and to our church. Would you do these things with me? Because we may not have tomorrow. Let's do these things, okay? Our Heavenly Father is...